here in the States, the right to keep and bear arms is protected by the Constitution. It's right there in the Second Amendment. So we were curious how many other countries talk about weapons in their constitutions. Well, it turns out very few, actually. That's Zachary Elkins, Associate Professor of Government at the University of Texas, Austin. Elkins is a director of the Comparative Constitutions Project, and he says the number of those that mention guns has gone down over time. Early on in the 1800s, there were a fair number of countries, mostly in Latin America, but also Liberia, which, of course, is a country founded by former U.S. slaves. A fair number of those had some right to at least keep, if not to bear arms. Uh, I think it reached a high water mark in 1875 or so when we had nine or ten constitutions with such a right. But since then, it's become rather extinct. Um, There really are only three countries the U.S. included, that has something of a right to bear arms. It's Guatemala, Mexico, and the United States. And in those constitutions in uh, those Latin American countries, how unfettered was that right to bear arms? Well, in the early days, it looked very much like ours. There was often a clause that expressed the rationale for, for the right. So in our case, it was to provide for some sort of collective defense in the face of tyranny. And that was repeated in Latin American constitutions And it also repeated sort of the two components of this right, which is both to keep and to bear arms. And most people would interpret that as keep being the right to have it in your residence and bear being the right to have it outside your residence. Mm. And so initially they had both of those components, but over the years they they scrapped the the bear part. And for the most part, anything that was left in those constitutions of the 1900s had only referred to the right to keep arms in your residence. So is this kind of the trend over time, nations that have had constitutional provisions on the right to bear arms rescinded them later? That's right. I mean, I think the original rationale for the right, which made sense for some Latin American countries in the 1800s, of course, inspired by the U.S., I mean, that rationale for some sort of collective defense against tyranny just doesn't make sense to a lot of people now. Of course, many people see it as a public health risk. But also there's a growing sense that they're more content with the state having a monopoly over guns and and a monopoly over violence. So as a constitutional expert, can the Second Amendment be amended? I think there's a lot of room for consensus on the rewriting of the Second Amendment. First of all, I think it makes sense to do so. This was drafted uh, 200 years ago, and I think if you sat James Madison down in a Boeing 787 with an iPhone and allowed him to FaceTime with Thomas Jefferson, he'd be... A little disappointed that we haven't done better with what they've written, but I think That's there's a, a lot great of image, cons- by the way. <laughs> <laughs> it is, yeah. Um, I think there's a, a lot of latent consensus on what we should do about guns. I think at this point there's emerged uh, something of a consensus that there is an individual right to bear arms. I think people understand that there's some legitimate reasons for people to own arms, whether it be for hunting or defense. And so I think any sense that we're going to prohibit guns, that has long since left the station. But I think that it's also the case that people recognize that there is a very serious public health risk and that it does make sense to have some regulations. And I think we can write the Second Amendment in a way that makes sense. Zachary Elkins, Associate Professor of Government at UT Austin, thanks very much for your thoughts. My pleasure. Great to be here. One question we always try to ask on the show is, how did we get here? That's where our resident history guy, Chris Wolf, comes into the picture. So let's talk about how we got here with the Second Amendment. It states, very simply, Chris, that a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, shall not be infringed. Why was this language so important to the founders? Marco, the roots of the Second Amendment lie in 
English law, the, the revolutionary experience itself, and uh, contemporary European political thought. Um, in short, it's the idea that the people have a right to defend themselves against tyranny, and that if a government breaches that social contract with its people, the people have a right to overthrow that government. It's it's the argument that lies at the very heart of the Declaration of Independence, Marco. So it's almost like you can't have the ideology of the uh, Declaration of Independence without the Second Amendment. So this kind of springs out of the Enlightenment. Can you describe the roots of that fear of tyranny in the 18th century? Well, it was a very real fear. You think about the mindset of the colonists. They had seen this in the case of France in the 1680s when disarmed French Protestants were forced to convert to Catholicism at the muzzle uh, of the barrels of the guns of Mm. uh, the king's dragoons. And in England itself, a pro-Catholic king, James II, attempted to disarm Protestants again with an idea, probably false, that he was going to forcibly convert them to Catholicism. We never found out because he was overthrown in a revolution in England in Mm. 1688, which ended in their Bill of Rights being written in 1689 and shrining the right to bear arms as one of those liberties of freeborn English men. So if the founders here in America were trying to prevent tyranny, how did that work out in the long run? Well, obviously, it seems admirable in theory, much more difficult to put into practice. For example, how do you decide who speaks for the people? And the United States itself was not happy when people tried it. They weren't happy when the Confederates tried it. They weren't happy when the Black Panthers talked about it in the 1960s. And they weren't happy when angry farmers in Pennsylvania tried it as early as the 1790s in the Whiskey Rebellion. Let me just ask you about English law. You mentioned that there was this provision in their Bill of Rights to keep and bear arms. Does that still exist? Well, in a word, no. England doesn't have a constitution. This was just a law, and Parliament is supreme and can rewrite any law and repeal any law. So with various acts that started as early as 1716, there were attempts to restrict the ownership of weapons and firearms in particular. So in that phrase in the Second Amendment, you've got the components of today's gun control debate. Gun control activists point to well-regulated, the NRA and its followers point to shall not be infringed. When did the Second Amendment change to mean an individual's right to bear arms rather than this kind of more collective notion of owning guns? Well, it is both. In the 2008 Supreme Court decision, the District of Columbia versus Heller, the court finally defined it as meaning both. But if you look at the earliest legal commentaries, the individual's right to defend themselves and the individual's right to bear arms are there alongside this notion of collective defense against tyranny and external threats and and even internal threats. So in a sense, America today has to ask itself, does this theoretical need to defend uh, against tyranny outweigh the apparent public health need of the need to reduce gun deaths? The world's history guy, Chris Wolf, thank you very much for this. Really interesting. You're welcome, Marco.